Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello! And welcome again to the Hobcast Book Show. I've lost count of how many it is. 45? <laughs> I think it is 45, yeah, but when you said that I thought, oh gosh, so have I. 45, yes. Well, okay, we'll stick with 45. If it isn't, we apologise. Uh, thanks for joining us on this week's show. Our guest this week is Lynn Laversha, another of our Hobeck authors, whose brilliant debut novel, Blood Notes, is out just after this podcast, in fact, the day after. 23rd of November. So we're very excited um, to be launching that. It's it's a superb novel. And um, you may notice that the sound of quality of our recording is a little different this week. We're back in bed. Um, not because we're lazy. but <laughs> we're, actually, we're, we're not ill either, really. No, we're not either. No, no, it's a Sunday morning. We're, we've got the cat on the bed. No, that shall make her presence felt. But um, it just felt like the place to do it. I have to say, um, so... You say the cat's on the bed. She's nestled in my knee pits, actually, looking at me and asking, looking at me as if say, why are you talking? Yeah, yeah, she would do that. <laughs> why haven't you fed me? I have fed her. Oh, you have? Right, well, she'll <laughs> probably try and claim to me that she hasn't been fed. Oh, she definitely will. Yeah, she always tries it on. Anyway, uh, there is a reason for us being in bed, and actually it's a connection with the first chapter, which you will hear later in the interview with Lynn, because it is set in bed. So we thought we'd do the same for our... We did. <laughs> bit of the podcast. Uh, you know, it means I don't have to get dressed. And besides, we're under some time pressure because we've got to get your youngest out to golf. I'm not wearing later. a yellow uh, faded silk kimono, though. I'm wearing a uh, non-faded white and blue kimono. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a kimono. and They're always kimonos. They are, aren't they? Yeah, unless, of course, it's my dressing gown. Right, I do m- like wearing your dressing you gown. D- you do. You d- appropriated it. Well, it's, um, it's it's exciting to be with you again on the Hopcast Book Show. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, we ought to explain who we are. I'm Adrian Hobart. I'm Rebecca Collins. Together we are the co-directors of Hobeck Books, UK independent small publishers of the following genres. Crime. Mystery. Thrillers. And suspense. Oh, you remembered the last one. Well done. I did, I did. I don't know whether I, I dug that from the deep recesses of my brain. Yeah, if and there they are, are such very things. deep recesses. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like a caving expedition gone wrong. Absolutely, that's exactly what your brain is like. <laughs> yeah. I, d- I daren't delve too deep. <laughs> you don't no. know what you might find. Memories no. of all sorts of uh, youthful exploits. Uh, well, actually, some of those creep into the interview with Lynn. They do. So, so um, <laughs> we, we, will, we, will, we will discuss that later. Uh, right, let's get into some news. And there's quite a lot around uh, of, of interest. You picked out a, a, a story um, which you'd like to dispute. Well, yes, it's just, I don't know. It's just, you, you see these stories in the bookseller and uh, they say, oh, fantastic sales. And this is, this is a... Um, 
uh, Faber and Faber, who are officially an independent uh, publisher. Um, but they've, uh, you know, everybody's heard of Faber and Faber. They're very well established. Been going for a very long time. And the MD of Faber and Faber, Mary Cannon, Cannon even, has, uh, she's saying, you know, all this this stuff about independent publishers struggling at the moment, it's not true. We've had 12% in our last uh, quarter increase in sales. We're doing really well. We've got Sally Rooney and there's, you know, some other well-known books that they've been promoting and publishing and uh, with great success. And I think, yes, that's great. And I'm very happy for you. But there's a size issue here. You know, the independent publisher can encompass anything from two people, such as us, to somebody like Bloomsbury Publishing is a good example. They are officially an independent publisher, but they've got countless imprints. I don't know how many now, you know. Mm. They they keep acquiring more and more imprints. Big offices in the centre of London, lovely offices. They are, you know, they've been going... uh, for decades as well, a few decades as well actually eight since the 80s um and it's just i think you know when you see these news items you have to take it with a pinch of salt we all operate we may be independent class independent but we operate in slightly in different um you know uh uh strata yes yeah i mean different spheres uh yeah i take your point i mean i think that it's very interesting, isn't it, in the UK that there are uh, the big five publishers and then below them are names like Bloomsbury, who you would assume are f- fit into the big five. I mean, I, I I don't know where the big five starts and stops, to be honest, because so many of their imprints are sort of buried. You know, the Penguin Random House have dozens of, oh, of sub-prints, you know, so then it's, it's, it's a vexed market. But look, I'm delighted for Faber and Faber that they've got twelve percent growth. Actually, <laughs> if we went, if we were honest, we'd have uh, something like you know one hundred and fifty percent growth <laughs> in sales, but that doesn't necessarily translate to profits. Um, you know, so that is that's our sort of battle as a as a startup. Is, is... That would look great in the bookseller, though, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it would. It would. But I mean, you know, from zero to whatever we've got now is uh yeah that's the tale i mean of course we've grown we've got you know new authors new books out all the time but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know it's um you know it's it's the money floods in i mean you know it's 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 a battle and as we've said several times in in recent weeks um, and let's not forget that the number of independent publishers that who, uh, of whom we would probably compare ourselves have given up or had to to put a lot of uh, you know extra investment in and basically been bought out. Yes, it, it does happen, and or seek funding elsewhere. You know, the, yep. the, you know, we would we would absolutely love that to happen to us, somebody to offer us funding. But um, no, no, it doesn't work like that necessarily. No. I'm being stared at the whole time we recorded this podcast. It's very disconcerting. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I wanted to pick up again on another story, which um, you know, it's kind of a theme for the last couple of weeks. Well, let's go back to audiobooks, and the industry has started to the, the big industry has started to react to the takeover that we mentioned last week of uh, Spotify buying Findaway Voices and Storytel. Um, 
uh, moving in big time uh, and spending a lot of money um, buying into uh, into the UK and US markets. And there is real concern about the impact on income um, from audiobooks if streaming takes hold, which I think inevitably it will. Uh, we've got used to in the audiobook market the subscription model, i.e., you know, getting a percentage of the uh, monthly credit that Audible charge, you know, whatever it is, mm. uh, $13 in the States, £8 in this yeah, country. Yeah, it's isn't it? Yeah, Plus, right. Yeah. And then they pay uh, <laughs> a fraction of that to the content creators, the narrators and the uh, the, the authors, in most cases in, in Audible or indeed us as publishers. Uh, other platforms offer a bit more, some about the same, but it's expected that the subscription move will, like it's done for musicians, hammer what you get. And in fact, it's interesting that the the the, the DCMS committee in in um, in Westminster, that is the uh, department Department of Culture, Media uh, and Sport uh, committee, have actually published a report saying that the whole of the subscription um, and streaming model has to be ripped up because people aren't being paid enough. The creators are oh. not being paid enough. It's uh, you know it's a scandalous That is quite situation. extreme. I mean, it's true. Yeah. It's They're right. But, you know, if you think about that, that is basically saying you've got to change everything of, of the way things are going. You've got to completely change and go back. Right, well, uh, no less than the CEO of Penguin Random House, Marcus Dola, oh, yeah. has unreservedly said subscription models are de- detrimental to author income and that publishers have a wider responsibility to support retail. Um, they had their Future Book Conference, the bookseller, this, uh, uh, this yes, week. I so there's loads that, and loads yeah. of lines coming out of that, but uh, most of them are sort of, well, ran above my head, to be perfectly honest. Um <laughs> Uh, when it comes to subscription, I'm convinced that in the long run, it is not good for author income. It is not good for retail. Look at these investments this week. Big bucks flowing into the United States publishing industry. Storytel and Spotify entering the scene. We have a very clear view on this. It's not good for authors. It's not good for retail. It's not good at creating the future of books and long-term reading for generations to come. And we continue to apply that our strategy, that to our strategy rather, so that's a pretty strong thing. Strong. A lot of agents have said the same thing. Um, I would say, though, it's a bit rich coming from Penguin Random House, given that they're trying to take a larger chunk of the market by, you know, buying out Simon & Schuster. And this is, <laughs> you know, it, it suits them when they want to buy things out and take further control of the uh, of the market. Um, but when something else comes along that, that threatens their, their model, uh, they're not happy. However, however, I do think... What he's saying is my suspicion too. Yeah. True, truly. And so, you know, we, we have distributed through Find A Way. They sent us sent me an email this week, uh, Find A Way Voices, saying uh, nothing really. Um, you know, just noting that you may have seen in the news that we've been bought out by, uh, you know, um, Spotify. And... Uh, this is now subject to, you know, the regulators in the United States. And that was about it. We'll have more details later um, about what this means. And that really isn't good enough. Um, You know, 
between those two companies, they know what it means. And the fact that they're keeping Stumm suggests that it's not good news. Um, because one thing that would... Uh, I mean, you know, essentially, where where does that leave us in terms of audiobook distribution? Uh, I don't like the Audible model at all. I don't like the way they behave. I don't like the, the you know, the fact that they've, over, you know, recent years until they were caught out, were allowing people to hand audiobooks back and then, um, you know, actually clawing back the... Uh, the 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 you know the money that was being paid in royalties clawing them back from the the, the publishers the narrators and the the authors um uh but not saying that that was what they were doing mm. um you know to, to the extent that one or two authors reported that they were having to pay, you know they owed money to audible as opposed to being paid for stuff and that's just criminal it is and you know and and I mean, I, I have a number of productions with Audible for which I have, um, you know, a 20% share of whatever comes in. And it's a pittance. Um, so they behave badly. They're badly disorganised. There's no way of discovering new Audible productions apart from their own in terms of, you know, finding books because they haven't done anything about discoverability. You have to actively search, yeah. actually. And, and and it's crazy to me that the Amazon app, you cannot buy digital products, ebooks or Audible um, productions. You have to go to the .com site or the .co.uk site. Yeah. You know, you actually have to go away from your app. So there are lots of reasons why I think it stinks. Um, and actually, you know, <laughs> the more I think about it, for all the effort that goes into an audiobook, mm. and believe me, it takes so much time to get it right. Uh, it's it, it does feel like you know, is it worth it? Yeah, at times? I mean, that's that's what worries me that it, it'll get to the situation where a lot of uh, narrators, especially uh, the, the people who haven't got celebrity status, will think that is it worth it? And mm. you'll just have celebrity books. Well, if it was based on what I've earned from it. It's not worth it. Mm. That's simple as that. And so a lot of good content won't get into the Audible format or or DA format. And I think, you know, it's a shame because a lot of people have reported that they, you know, I spoke to someone this week when I was um, away in Cambridge uh, who was saying, oh, I've given up reading. I I now, you know, I couldn't cope during lockdown with with reading a book. So I've relied on Audible. Yeah, Um, I do more than I ever did. Yeah, absolutely. I love listening to a book. Yeah, well, okay. you know, so some some, uh, well, let's put it this way: some stark thoughts there on on the future. Now, uh, there's one other story that caught my eye, which was a, it's kind of, it, I don't know how to describe it really. Is it? Would you describe it as charming or sad or I don't know? <laughs> You're going to have to enlighten me. Cause I well, don't know. This is the story about a bookshop, independent bookshop. I you have to forgive me because my phone is playing up now and is not allowing me to to find the story. Um, it's called Bookish, and they are based in Crickhow in Wales, and they're desperately trying to. It's on the next page, but I cannot access the next page of the uh, of the bookseller because it just simply isn't responding. <laughs> it's been a bit of a pain this morning, hasn't it, the bookseller? Oh yeah, well, absolutely. Here we go. Right. So this bookshop in, in uh, it's run by a, a 
a couple, Emma and Andrew Caulfield Walters, and uh, they have their bookshop, Book-ish, in Crickhow, small market town. And um, they've been struggling. Um, their landlord has decided to sell the property and uh, they've offered first choice to the to the partnership but they obviously had a very tough year because they were shut for a lot of it mm. um, the last 18 months during the pandemic. So they've started a GoFundMe campaign uh, to try and raise £30,000 by January the 31st next year to uh, to buy and or at least secure their option on the bookshop. Now, when I saw this on Twitter, they uh, were saying they've they're twenty five percent into that already, and that was within uh, just a few days of starting it. And because I saw this on Twitter, because mm-hmm. I saw you know the sort of explosion of goodwill and donations and people you know retweeting and saying I've donated, it's fantastic. We, you know I've been to your bookshop, I love it. I can't imagine it not being there. You know, so that's what I love is just people come together because they want these bookshops they don't you know they they want to do what they can to keep them because it's not just the buying of books is it it's the the act of going there and the, and the atmosphere and the and the the support that you get the booksellers get from the readers and the ad- advice on good things to read and the selection that they have that's um so yeah so they they're on their way to getting that yeah, and look, this is actually a bookshop that won the Bookshop of the Year, the British Book Awards last year. Um, it covers two floors, has a cafe, a bar, and an event space. Yeah. I mean, it's just your dream bookshop, isn't it, really? <laughs> Local bookshop. Um, and, yeah, so they've they've gone public trying to, to raise this money uh, because the banks simply will not listen. And as they describe, their skewed accounts don't really... <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, that. <laughs> you know, look. All of us, all of us who love books, are doing this fashion. And we had that story in uh, Belper in Derbyshire. Um, I mean, sadly, we were trying to get hold of the guy who who is running that particular bookshop who hasn't got back to us yet. But one day we'll we'll cover that, and perhaps next week our interview will be with the independent bookshop. I yeah. actually have high hopes for this because well, I, I think it'd be nice to speak to Ember and Andrew's part of this. But we'd like to speak to independent bookshops yeah. because we we believe passionately in them. Having said that. You know, our only bookshop nearby is a Waterstones. Um, it's a petite water Waterstones, and that's that's it. And um, I think I, I struggle to think whether next one is Nantwich or something, isn't it for us? Uh, Shrewsbury or Nantwich? Yeah, yeah. there's, so there's one tw- in Shrewsbury, twenty uh, odd miles books, which is lovely. Yeah, but they are on the edge. I mean, you know, it's true they are on the edge of survival. Because yeah. they're much Wenlock. Um, it's a lovely little village in Shropshire. And uh, only, I'd say, three years ago, it had two really good independent bookshops. One that was secondhand, one was new and secondhand. And I used to take the boys every Christmas Eve to the, uh, the book, the both bookshops. So we go to the, the one that had new and secondhand because the lady who runs it, her birthday was Christmas Eve and my birthday is Christmas Day. So I'd go in, she'd have champagne and she'd say, oh, hello, your birthday's tomorrow. You have a glass of champagne. It was lovely. And they had to close, uh, yeah. you know, about 18 months ago, I think now. And yeah. it's tragic. So they didn't even make it to the pandemic. No, they get it was before the pandemic. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very tough. And uh, in the retail space for, for all 
sides of retail. You only have to go down Stafford High Street to realise that getting on for 50% of the shops are, are boarded up now. Um, I mean, it's not the case when I was in Cambridge. Uh, you visited Oxford. Well, this is interesting about Oxford is, so a uh, few years since I've been to Oxford and they've jazzed up the shopping centre. It always had a shopping centre, the mm-hmm. Westgate shopping centre, but it's been recently jazzed up quite significantly. And you can see the effect on the high street. There are boarded up shops on Oxford High Street. And that I thought, that now that is something. Stafford High Street, it's a slightly different category. But Oxford, yeah, you know, where, where some of the main shops were, it's just unoccupied. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Well, Cambridge is flourishing. <laughs> At least somewhere <laughs> is flourishing. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a real concern. So uh, all power to their elbow as they try and keep bookish uh, in-house and, and, you know, keep going as they are. Um, but yeah, sounds tough. Right, okay, <laughs> ever depressing. The new section <laughs> at the moment. Well, I mean, there's that the, the the sausage book. I can't remember the title, but I was very cheered to see a book about a helpful sausage roll sold fourteen thousand copies last week. And that was from what Greg's? Was it? <laughs> no, I don't know. I just wow Christmas books. I think if you get if you nail. A Christmas book every year. It's a bit like, well, the, like the, the dark, number one. Like the Dark Side of Christmas, available <laughs> yeah. very, very soon. If um, we sell 14,000 copies of that, I'm going to dance around and all be naked. Wow, there's an option. <laughs> no, get out there and buy it. Um, anyway, let's get to our interview with Lynn yes. Laversha. And um, Lynn, Lynn's first novel with us is, uh, is Blood Notes. It is set in her uh, sort of a fictionalised slight side partially fictionalized um area around where she lives in suffolk uh, she actually lives in one of the most beautiful houses i've ever seen <laughs> in southwold overlooking the river blythe uh it's a simply stunning um location southwold is uh if you've ever been uh well it was interesting i was in a in a chinese restaurant in cambridge and there, <laughs> there was some um, some hooray henry's in there uh, and uh, there was a guy bemoaning his luck. He had big floppy hair. He was mid mid twenties, I suppose, saying that he couldn't. Uh, he was struggling to uh, get a date with the particular girl that he was after. <laughs> uh, and he said, "I couldn't believe it. I mean, I invited her to the place in Southworld, and even that wasn't enough." <laughs> I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it is. It's a wonderful spot. Um, you know, but it's uh, it's a second home on the coast for a lot of people in London as well. So there's a lot of money knocking around, including your Henry friend. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's get to Lynn. Lynn um, has had a career in education, uh, particularly in theatre studies, and written, uh, she tells us, uh, some thirty plays. So writing's been in her blood for a long time, and obviously the power of the the written word uh, is very important to her. But uh, Towards the end of her education career, she decided that uh, she would move into writing novels. And that's what she's done. She went to UEA, like many of our authors, to the Crime Writing MA uh, at UEA. And Blood Notes was the product uh, for, of that. But book two, uh, Bloodlines, as I think it's uh, settling as a title, will be out uh, early in the new year as well. So, And I'm reading that at the moment and it's brilliant yes and um it is uh it's a slight twist on the procedural in the sense that uh the main character used to be a copper 
but has, uh, through life and bereavement, moved away from that and a bad decision she made early in her career. Um, and Steph Grant is now working as a receptionist in a sixth form college and therefore is at the foc focal point of all the gossip as things start to unravel in Blood Notes. Let's speak to Lynn Laversha. Lynn Laversha, thank you so much for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. You know, having visited your your uh, amazing house, I imagine that what we're looking at uh, on our Zoom feed is that you're sitting in the kitchen. I know where she's sitting. I recognise those paintings. <laughs> <laughs> I am indeed. It's very bright this morning. A completely clear blue sky. And it's just a lovely place to sit with the sun. Um, so, yeah, so that's where I am. I'm in my kitchen, um, which is a great place for Zoom because I can see uh, if people come to the gate, my dog then goes violently mad doing his job. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to hearing from Bertie some point during this interview. That would that would make our day. It would, actually. So we, 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 are, we expect it to happen. So <laughs> please, Bertie. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. <laughs> now, if you were to look to your left, though, past your... Um, in a kitchen island, then out towards the river, river Blythe. So you're in Southwold, which is one of my favourite spots in the world, now one of Rebecca's, I think. Absolutely. I loved it. I really loved it there. And, um, I mean, that view you have is, is, is awesome across the marshes um, towards the river. But uh, Southwold is clearly a big inspiration behind m much of the setting for uh, yes. Blood Notes. And Suffolk too. Uh, I mean, I set it in a, a, a fictitious town of Oakwood, which is a sort of hybrid Halesworth and Beckles, if anybody knows this area. It's just outside Southwold, so that it could have a sixth form college, which would give me my setting. Um, there is no sixth form college. Um, there's one in Ipswich, but not locally. Um, and also to be able to have this fictitious town with people moving around it. And then they come to Southwold, um, which I know very well, having lived here now for, I think, 12 years, um, and visited for much, much longer, uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's such a magical place. Uh, you know, it has the, the beach and the wonderful houses. It's got outstanding natural beauty areas, uh, marshes. It, it, well, I think it's an absolutely wonderful place to live. And I thought if putting it in the novel, it's not that it's going to be like Midsummer where we have lots of murders here. Um, <laughs> it's a very safe, very, very, I think, very warm place with lovely people. Um, but uh, I think it makes a great setting for any novel. It really does. I mean, it is, uh, well, it's easy to say, you know, picture postcard and all that sort of thing, but it has a unique character because of the, the nature of the architecture. It's, it's spectacular. Everywhere you turn, there's a little lane that goes past some dream building built in you know victorian period or georgian or i mean it's just astonishing well, i think it's not just the architecture for me um with my sort of artist head on it's the the skies it's got the most amazing yeah. skies fast mm -hmm. skies and the colors are different from colors you might get in west wales or um <laughs> <Bognor> regions. <And> it, <laughs> i'm obsessed by the weather i discover i mean it's interesting going back and rereading the next novel for um, bloodlines I think it's called for I don't know third or fourth time to edit it and realizing that the clouds come in so often and of course it is because the whole place is just full of sky um, and I when we moved here from Suffolk from Surrey 
I read some book that said you will become obsessed by the weather. And you do. You know, once you move out of a large town, you suddenly become so aware of um, the clouds and the, the leaves. You know, at the moment, the whole of this area is full of the most gorgeous sort of pale marmalade colored leaves. And uh, where I was living in London, they only had plane trees and they were up or down. You know, they, they never, yes. there wasn't this personality. <laughs> I can remember when we first moved, it was, we stopped the car at one point to look at the buds because it was just wonderful to see buds, this amazing sort of mist across um, bushes. So, yeah, I, I, I think I have become completely taken over by the area. Um, although we, both my husband and I were born in Suffolk, so it's like coming home and appreciating, I suppose, the... Um, the more beautiful bits and inland, which many people who come here don't see. Um, and if you come again, you must go inland. There are some superb places. Yeah. Yeah, there really are. Um, I always used to feel it was because I obviously was born, born and brought up, brought up in Cambridge. I will get my teeth in. Um, and it used to be a bit of an effort to get to the bit when you actually got into beautiful Suffolk. I mean, okay, Newmarket's on the border between the two places. And at one point it was in Cambridgeshire and the next it was in, in Suffolk. Um, but it takes a bit of an effort. But once you get past Bury St Edmunds, bingo. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yes, it's lovely. I, I'm not, I never tire of it. I never tire of my dawn, which I see on one side of a house and the sunset on the other. So, yeah. <laughs> no, it is, I'm, it's, glad it's you lo- I'm glad you loved it too. Absolutely. Well, well, for me, it was my first time because uh, coming from in the Midlands, um, our nearest seaside was always West Wales. So, it, it, you know, and Adrian has been going on about how wonderful Southwold is for quite a while. And so it was lovely to see it and and, and sort of connect all the, the, the things he'd said. And um, yes, so I'd love to move there. Well, I mean, the, 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 the big connection for <laughs> me is it was the first place I had beer. Um, oh really? <laughs> and and of course, drinking Adnams, you don't. It's pretty high, hard to to beat that. So, uh, Adnams being the brewer that sort of dominates the town, and um, just you know, and the smell of malt in the middle of the summer, <laughs> wafting yeah. across, mixed with sea air, is incredible. It's their hundred and fiftieth anniversary this year. Well, that, you know, more power to their elbow, but um, no, nothing, um, yeah. nothing. Uh, you know, I can I can taste it now, and the best fish and chips I think I've ever had as well, along with the beer. So uh, yeah, it was a seminal moment, age fourteen. <laughs> let's get on to uh, let's get on to the the, the the writing side of things, and um, you know, it's we always ask this question, and it's 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 always a difficult one to sort of sum up. But the journey from you know the 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 idea of becoming an author to actually becoming one, how would you describe that? And what, so what are the key staging posts in that journey? Well, I suppose it's been a lifetime because when I was a kid, I used to, uh, in the summer holidays, I would write plays um, and insist that all my friends performed in them. And then we had parents come to visit them and things. It was nothing grand, but it, uh, so I was always bossy and always being very creative, I suppose, with, with uh, composing stories and, and so on. And then um, I loved doing drama, but realised I wasn't good enough to go into the professional um, acting uh, or directing so, of course, where do you get a captive audience but teaching? Um, and um, so I moved into education and did English and drama. And each year I wrote a couple of plays, probably sometimes three, for the um, secondary school, uh, boys' school in Wandsworth, then a comp in Surrey, and then a sixth form college, for those kids to perform. So I must have, in a cupboard upstairs, 
about, I don't know, 20, 30 plays that I wrote because many of the plays that children were performing them, well, I used to call them costumed parrots. Um, mm-hmm. They weren't real kids in the 70s and 80s. They were mini adults um, and they didn't deal with their issues. They, um, I mean, particularly, as you can imagine, a, a school in Wandsworth was you, you came across quite a lot of issues. And I felt it was really important to reflect those uh, on the stage and the kids live those lives. And um, so I did, used to do a Mike Lee where we'd um, have lots of kids together. We'd see who wanted to be in. Everybody got a part who wanted it. And we'd improvise. And then, you know, I'd look around at their skills and write a play around them um, rather than actually thinking, what am I going to write about? So I suppose there was um, all that going on. And even when I moved to the Sixth Form College and I taught English and Theatre Studies A-level there, um, we did lots of um, improvisations and helped the kids develop their own writing. But the funny thing was they wanted to do at 17-year-old, 18-year-olds, they wanted a nativity play each year. (laughs) So I used to write this nativity play. I mean, sometimes it was very close to the traditional one. And in fact, um, the head of drama actually bought me my own nativity kit you know, with the three kings and the boxes and all the rest of it and tea towel shepherds and so on. Um, um, We actually then started writing, we started going a bit off piste and writing, I can remember one called The Grumpy Camel. Um, And uh, they they just so loved it. And we used to show this in the hall on on the last day of term and it was always crowded out. And there was this feeling that they wanted to celebrate Christmas as they had when they were five. And their parents. Yeah, definitely. So it was you know, that whole, so I suppose I did that. And then um, I, I'd always wanted to write, and again, in this cupboard, which I ought to get rid of before the kids you know, start sorting it out for me. Um, there's, there's loads and loads of starts of things, unfinished short stories um, that I could write on holiday when my brain wasn't full of work. And then after I had more space, I went to, um, I, I took the kids to the Arvon Foundation, which was um, really useful in getting techniques sorted although that was more poetry writing but then went to um, ways with words which had an Italian writing holiday and I thought yeah great this sounds good and met Blake Morrison who was a great influence and suddenly I was able to write prose which I'd never done before I mean it's quite ironic that you know your feedback on the novel which I found so helpful it was the dialogue you picked up I thought shit the dialogue is really good I'm really good at dialogue why doesn't it work and of course it's because it's writing in prose and suddenly it becomes rather more somehow formal it, it was easier right so I've, I've gone back to writing many chapters as a play and then putting in the prose afterwards um, but yes I went to ways with words and Blake kept saying well if you gave up your job because at that moment I was still doing um, uh, visits to 16 secondary schools in Surrey and Sussex and Richmond uh, which we took, took out weeks at a time, travelling from Suffolk, uh, you'd have more time to do it. And why don't you think about doing an MA? And uh, I thought, I'm not going to Goldsmiths, where he taught, because it's just such a journey. So went to UEA, uh, got accepted for their um, crime writing MA, which was a fantastic, challenging course. Most of the time, I think I felt pretty remedial, um, because the whole place was full of very talented writers, 12 talented writers who'd been journalists or already published. Um, but did very well, I think, um, in the end. And the novel that I handed in um, to you was a bit of a changed novel, but virtually the one I handed in for the final assessment. Um, and here we are. You know, you were very kind um, and saw something in my writing and picked it up and publishing that and now the second one. So thank you to 
uh, Adrian and Rebecca. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> That's very sweet of you. And, you know, it's a great privilege to be to be publishing uh, Blood Notes. And the first one, as we publish this pod- podcast, coming out the It'll day be after. The day after, yeah. yeah so, and, you know, the, the pattern is, is well established now. Um, and it, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful book on, on many levels. But let's introduce our main protagonist, Steph Grant, and her situation, because she's a former copper. Um, her life's taken a, a, a difficult turn with bereavement and, and as a consequence, loses her confidence, I suppose, and takes a, a career, a new career, um, somewhat less I mean you know it's not I wouldn't say less responsible but less stressful perhaps than her previous that was the hope I think that was the hope yeah (laughs) it didn't quite work out that way so she's she's moved into this sixth form college environment as the uh, principal's um, sort of aide-de-camp and receptionist and and therefore gets to meet all the students as they they come and go Um, and uh, we pick it up from there so you know she's it's a period of flux for her um how would you describe uh you know when you were coming up with Steph and and creating the character where where would you uh say that came from well when I worked in sixth form college I always used to go to the receptionist to find out what was going on if I didn't know already (laughs) um because um Julie who was our receptionist the kids would stop and talk to her staff would come and gossip and you know, I, she, I, she always knew. Um, I knew quite a lot, but she knew more. And uh, so I, I, I realised very soon that they were a bit like maids in Downton Abbey, or you know, those people who stand there in funny outfits. They, they, they overhear an awful lot. They keep their mouths shut and they're so lost. Um, but they, they just absorb so much because they're there all day, seeing the world go past them. Mm-hmm. And of course, I needed to have something. It wasn't a police procedural as such, but she needed to have. She really get involved in a murder, um, in, in investigating a murder in the college. She needed to have some sort of official backing. So I thought, well, she could re-meet this guy whom she had fancied in the police, but now she was a widow and he was divorced. So Hale comes in, which gives her a sort of, you get a, a bit of the police bit, uh, more, I think, in the second novel. But it, it means that she can um, exist between, she's like a hinge, really, between the students and the staff, the principal, who also gets drawn in, and that gets developed in the second novel. But also, I think, with, with the police, so she's um, she's got the background. And, of course, she's done almost, well, 30 years in the police as a detective and also been looking at murders in Suffolk. There aren't, there aren't that many, actually, but she was involved in them all. Um, <laughs> so I think she's, um, you know, it, it's a sort of multifaceted character who who is also looking for a meaning for herself um, mm. because... Um, as you, you know, she left under a cloud when she left the police. She had a sort of a breakdown um, because of what she did. Um, and um, she felt that she had to leave, having having lived a very clean life in the police all that time. And, and in a moment of madness, she just decided to look at natural justice rather than the justice that the police are supposed to exact. Indeed, and that's in the... Uh, free, prequel. Yeah, the prequel novella that we've got on offer uh, as part of our offer. If you sign up to www.hobeck.net, <laughs> sign up to our mailing list, you can uh, pick up Steph's story from the moment where things really changed. Um, what I love about the book, 
you know, I think both of us f- feel the same way. Really, is your um, you you've got a character the the sort of I suppose the inciting um, character, the one that drives the narrative along. Not so much Steph, if if you know she's the protagonist and she, and she's you know observing things and gra- gradually gets more and more involved in the story. But we're talking about the tortured relationship between a prodigy going into mm-hmm. sixth form college, having had no formal education, been homeschooled, a protective mother, and uh, he's a, che- a cello prodigy. Um, and uh, his arrival ruffles a few feathers, let's, let's put it that way, uh, inside a, a, an environment. And also, of course, he's facing the, uh, the confusions and, and problems of mm-hmm. mixing with other people of his own age um, socially, and yet he's never done that before, so he's completely exposed. So, take us through that. Well, I, I work with quite a lot of homeschooled children, um, and I think there's nothing wrong with homeschooling when it's done properly. But the fact is that when I was in working for the local authority, there was no—you just didn't know what was happening to these children. Um, I mean, some of them will become carers, some will be um, actually—I suppose—could be well abused, actually. Um, but you just that they're Ofsted at one point was going to take over inspection, but it, it, yeah, all sorts of things happened. But these children would come in at 16 because they wanted A-levels. They wanted to go off. Many of them were musicians, very talented musicians. They would want to go off at, um, to, at 18 to music college. Um, and their parents had you know, done a very good job, but they had they, they were I sort of like one single column on a spreadsheet. They were totally music based and they didn't want to do anything else. Um, the, be- the, you know, the, the really well homeschooled children were very well socialized, but there were some that weren't. And I think that was the, I just, ex- I suppose, ex- exploded the, in Edmund, the child who wasn't, you know, not having television, really, internet, not going out and hanging with his friends. Um, and he came from a, almost like, you know, one of those, um, I forget what those, you know, people who are brought up by wolves, <laughs> they just suddenly found <laughs> in society. He goes from living this very enclosed life with his mother, with no friends, no pets, um, without the usual stuff. He just you know, was a very compliant boy who trusted his mother. They had this joint ambition that he was going to make it big on the professional music scene as a cellist. Um, and then suddenly gets exposed to this world of 16-year-olds, which is very exciting. Um, they don't, don't have his talent. And, of course, that causes quite a stir because... He comes into a music department, which is very good, with an outstanding music director. But, you know, he is something special. And he then, you know, immediately upsets the dynamic. Um, And you have this sort of tension of him being brilliant, cellist, upsetting the students, but also not understanding the students. Uh, He's never been to a party. Uh, He doesn't have a phone. He doesn't know what a hoodie is. Uh, All these basic things that kids know uh, he's missed out on, and I thought it from one world to another. Yeah, and and there's an element. I mean, he's he sort of arrives dressed like Alan Partridge, blazer, blazer <laughs> <laughs> mm, mm. and chinos kind of uh, yeah. approach into an environment where the hoodie is king, and you know, yeah. fresh trainers and all that stuff. Um, yeah. It's it's quite extraordinary, but. The impact that his talent has is, you know, you, 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 as you mentioned, the jealousy is very quick to surface amongst the other um, musicians, um, and uh, in particular, one 
one girl who uh, has hitherto been the superstar and suddenly mm. he's muscled and pushed to the front of the stage. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you know, we, we all need attention and we all, we, you know, even grown-ups like us, we love having attention, don't we? And suddenly when somebody comes and elbows you out, you're not going to feel that positive about that person and neither are your peers because they're going to, you know, the, the actual order is threatened. Um, they're, you know, they, there's, there's, there is, is, Adrian keeps telling me jeopardy. There is jeopardy in, in that relationship, um, you know, where there's a great deal of threat. Um, and I think, um, you know, with, with social groups, we do sort ourselves out and then something suddenly comes in, somebody new, breath of fresh air or a malign influence, and suddenly, you know, it all changes, doesn't it? Um, we, we are very tribal as people, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and totally. it, it carries on into adulthood. I can remember this mm-hmm. at the school gates. Yeah. Oh, new school gates. There's the next <laughs> idea. Like, Women are vicious, aren't they? <laughs> well, I, I actually specifically at that era, era, um, age, uh, I was at Sipham College in Cambridge and uh, an American girl arrived in our lower sixth year. And she was very, very bright and very attractive. Uh, and suddenly all the English, you know, her contemporaries, mm. it was just an enormous well of jealousy towards her. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, she's, she's invading their territory. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, all of us were flocking around her as, as boys. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can imagine. In our English lessons. So, I mean, she, she, uh, she was, yeah, I mean, she, she, she was kind of exotic. And, and it just caused ripples of you know little cliques broke out and you know she was subjected to some pretty appalling behavior by some of the other girls i felt mm. um yeah, yeah. Bullying at that age of course is is especially now with cyber bullying mm. um it really is horrid i think if you are the victim um which he was to a certain extent um you know as well as starring in his, his cello world um you know they do bully him um physically and um also uh, through uh, cyber bullying and it really is you know it's a it's a cruel world i mean i think as adults we are slightly more subtle but i don't know looking on some of the things that are happening with trolling and so on um it's only one step away from the more brutal brutal approaches of um 16 to 19 year olds i mean we've had the privilege of, of reading the second book too and, and, and rebecca's working through it now i think that what we were we were on a walk yesterday the two of us and we were discussing it and you just started reading yes i'd started it in the car on the way our conclusion was that what you your one of your gifts lynn as an author is that you give everything heart in the sense that um the inner life of your characters is is really at the core of all of the your your work Yes, there's exterior stuff, whereas a lot of us as authors will go, you know, raise their eyebrow and, you know, furrow brow and, you know, maybe a bit of bile rising up the throat as they get upset about something or whatever it might be. I think that your character's inner life is the key thing to all of them. You know, how they look and how they behave and and, and act and dress and whatever else is kind of secondary, really, to the fact that you've got to the emotional core of every single character. That's very kind. I'm blushing here. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it does come from a background of a lot of play reading and writing. I think because in a play you strip away the waffle 
Um, I'm not saying my prose is waffle, she says quickly. Um, but um, I think, you, you know, with, the di- with dialogue, you, you actually do have to, you, you, you read, you know, the subtext and working with students a lot on um, doing quite a lot of improvisations on subtext. You do get below what people, act- you get to their meaning and what they're actually trying to say, which they can't quite articulate. Uh, and you get also, I think, through um, a script, you get people's inner lives because you've only got what they say uh, yeah. and you don't get, you, you, you know, you, apart from somebody like Shaw who'd write pages of, of stage directions and descriptions, but you only really get the outward bit and you have to interpret the inner bit yourself. And I think it's that developing of subtext that um, I love doing. Yeah, and I, I think that um, that sort of negative space, you know, in the sense that you allow your readers to... Uh, see the clues and draw their own conclusions um, within the behavior and the, the thoughts. But you, I mean, in terms of blood notes, I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but the, the, there is an absolutely monumental twist. <laughs> we have been sold a dummy throughout the book <laughs> in, in a way that uh, it's so gratifying. When, when But that's, that's the cleverness about it. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know, you get people when they read a book and they say, Oh, I knew that was coming. Oh, I saw the clues. I love the fact that the the twist just gets you and makes you gasp. I think I ran from one room to the other and I found Adrian. And I said, I've just got to this bit here. Well, at UEA, they gave us these, you know, you had to do a theory, which was great, um, suited me down to the ground. They had the theory of, um, of crime writing and you've got, I forget who wrote it, but you had 10, it goes back to the 30s, I think, the sort of cosy period. Yeah, sounds like golden age, yeah. Is it? Yeah, it had sort of 10 rules that you had to do. And you, one of the important things was that you actually couldn't reveal something at the end that you hadn't led to during the novel. And I think that's, that's really important because I feel cheated. I, I, I forget who I was reading recently. And I thought, what? How did that happen? Where did that come from? There's no way that I could have worked that out because you never told me that even a sort of sentence earlier on and I think it, you feel very well I do I feel very cheated if I can't work yeah. it out um, and it, it's so important I think to not give it away but you put in a few little hints and and if you're if you if you construct it in the right way then you can work it out but to cheat I think that I feel felt quite cheated um, on a couple of occasions recently because somebody's just gone oh and he did it well, how? <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a bad episode of Scooby Doo. Um, <laughs> yeah. Every episode of Scooby Doo. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm I'm so tempted to just um, to I mean, we'll get ask you to read the the first chapter, but I mean, it is an absolute zinger of a. Would you like me to read it? Would you like me to read it? Oh yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, let's have that pre-publication <laughs> copy, sort of. On show right. here. Rebecca and I will, will will keep the conversation going. Well, the other thing I was going to say that I love about um, Lynn's writing is that the characters have ordinary problems and ordinary thoughts. Yes. For example, in, in the second book, she's thinking about how much she fancies Hale. And I love that bit. <laughs> <laughs> trying to quantify it because you know she's she's dealing with all these bigger problems and then she's thinking foie i really fancy him <laughs> yeah but there's a bit of tension coming in that relationship he's not oh, um, oh. yeah i mean she doesn't um, he doesn't really understand 
he's he's also being very spread. I kind of have this image of a spreadsheet where he goes just down this one line, you know, must solve the case, must solve the case. And of course, she's in the middle of the college and the police. And he doesn't realise how important it is for her to keep in with the principal. And there's quite a lot of tension building in Mm. their relationship. So I think I'm in the third one. I'm looking at a bit of a issue here. Oh, that's good. good. But that's good, though, because that's real life, isn't it? You know, I mean, you know, our relationship (laughs) isn't always perfect. Far from it. The novel is actually divided up into two voices, um, which is the most difficult thing, incidentally, in ever when I was at UA to try and find the voices. That is it. If you find the voices, then the rest works. Um, The first voice, there's Edmund and there's Steph. And Edmund is the um, child prodigy or the 17-year-old prodigy. Um, Right. We move apart and lie side by side on the rumpled sheets. I turn my pillow over. It cools my neck. The August sun knifes through the gap in the dusty maroon curtains that don't quite reach the sill. The blade slices the dust on the chest of drawers around her old perfume bottles. She shifts. The bed springs creak. How about a cup of tea? I ask. Or we could. She touches me. There. I slide away from her. I sit on the side of the bed. She strokes my shoulder. She pulls me back down. We lie, silent. A spider spins a thread from the lampshade in the afternoon sunlight. She reaches for my hand, pulls me towards her. Her finger traces the path left by a bead of sweat on my chest. She leans over, catches it on the tip of her tongue. Lying back, she sighs. Hmm... Tea would be lovely. I pull on my boxers, reach for my shirt. I'll stay here a while. You should be working. She pulls the covers up. I feel her watching as I tug on my trousers. I turn. She yawns, stretches luxuriously. I pick up her faded yellow silk kimono. I hand it to her. Sitting up, she takes it covers her breasts. Mm, Changed my mind. I'll get up and make supper. Spaghetti bolognese? Yes, please, mummy. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, as I say, I mean, you you perform that beautifully. Um, It it has the sucker, you know, has that gut punch uh second time round. Yeah, well, I mean, you read it first time. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't wouldn't tell me what it was that made him... (laughs) react and then i read it and the same sort of reaction you're like ah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm so afraid that, that that all came about because um I'm, i was one of the older members of the group and um as i say not as experienced as some of the writers in the uea um my, my classmates who were lovely absolutely brilliant and supportive and great readers and so on and at one point somebody said Oh, I, they read a lump for a workshop and they said, you know, I can sit myself sitting down on a Sunday afternoon in front of a fire with a glass of red wine and just sort of, you know, it felt so cosy. I thought, I'm not cosy. I'm going to do something shocking. <laughs> so that came out of that bit. 
<laughs> and then it just sort of grew. So it's it's got. I I do need to thank my group for that. I was going to say that person actually did you a favour, didn't they? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's a bit like you know on a driving test when the guy said he'd only done half the things we were supposed to have done. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So. No, you know, and that that takes. Um, I, I I love the way that you will take a an input like that and and be determined to to shock and and um, I think one of the things that we enjoy, you know, in terms of the process of publisher an author relationship is the fact that you you are open to um some suggestions you know and 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 some of the things we've suggested you know it's you know kind of let's look at that afresh um you know and, and quite directive really uh and yet you you know you, you've responded mag you know there's been a really really good creative relationship there well you, i think you know you do such a brilliant job because your feedback is exactly what I need. Um, it's you know, because you get. I sit in my writing hut in the garden, and of course, I I, I lose the ability to judge. Um, keep reading, you think, God, this is so boring. I remember the first time I printed out blood notes to read it on paper in, in one of the editing, so it helps because you see it differently. I fell asleep. <laughs> I it was so boring, and it was because, of course, I knew it so well, um, and you stop being able to judge. I think you, you need quite a lot of distance before you can come back again and think, oh, that is rubbish or that really isn't strong enough. And what you two do by um, reading and making comments on either early, early as I say, editions, but early drafts, or um, you know, even at this stage where I think when well, it's almost there, is you do sharpen and you suddenly think, oh, yes, of course, that doesn't come across. Or, oh, yeah. And, and I do find your feedback invaluable. And I really feel... Uh, you know, when when you got back to me and said, "Yeah, you know, send it to us," well, I think I fell on my feet. I think you are absolutely my perfect creative mentor. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. And drinking partners. <laughs> <laughs> that too. That always helps. Well, yeah. um, then you know, how do you feel uh, now that it's it's about to be out in the open world, but also it's been out in the sort of slightly more closed world of our review circuit well, it's like the, the, the circles isn't there there's a very inner core and that's us too yeah and then there's sort of the, another uh uh circle beyond that it's like a venn diagram and that's all the sort of the bloggers and the reviewers who say oh yes please can i read it can i read it yeah and then the wider world <laughs> the universe yeah i mean it's quite exposing isn't it and you know are you feeling trepidatious as, as we approach publication day or is it is it uh, has the process been uh, easier than that? Well, I suppose, yeah. I mean, I, I was quite taken aback by the, the positive reviews, but then I keep thinking, well, they got a free book out of it. <laughs> they were lovely. Um, but, you know, is this normal? Because uh, I don't know. Uh, I did a book for um, uh, teacher trainers on, on how to teach at A-level and didn't get, I got a lovely review from the department for Ed and, and Times Ed and so on. But, you know, that's not quite the same. It's not quite so personal. Um, but, uh, these have been absolutely brilliant reviews. And I've been so grateful to the bloggers who've um, been so positive and think, great. And I'll no doubt have dreadful reviews um, on Amazon when it goes out. And no, I'm not looking forward to them. But I sort of think, well, I remember once being on the tube and being shouted at by some man who was, I don't know what was wrong with him. And afterwards I got off and I thought, actually, it's not, you know, it's been awful to hear him say those things to me and about me. But it's not like you I you know I don't know him so I'm just hoping that that is how it's going to be 
when I get one star reviews and somebody says, oh, this is rubbish and, you know, whatever, gratuitous sex or whatever, um, <laughs> I, will, I will then think, well, okay, that's fine. Um, but I suspect I won't. I suspect it will, it, it will get to me, won't it? Um, but, uh, yeah, I'll let you know. That's the answer. I think I mean it is hard it's hard not to let it get to you I mean I think that's that's you know because you're human but I quite like that analogy you gave because you know I've had experiences like that where grumpy people have been horrible to me in public and I've gone home in floods of tears and then thought well hang on a minute perhaps they had a rubbish day (laughs) something made them take an instant dislike to me but they don't know me like you say so it's you know there is a similarity there they don't know it, it might not be their sort of thing they just they don't like books like that they like other sort of books they like the, the cozy with a glass of wine by the fire books or whatever you know <laughs> it's like that scene in star wars in the cantina and luke skywalker is approached by two aliens <laughs> he doesn't like you i don't like you either <laughs> you know. yeah, but i think that i'm so grateful to the people who've already put up those reviews because you know you sit for months and it was months because obviously it was a whole year in the course and then I fiddle around with it for another few months and you're all by yourself and you think actually the reason I'm doing this is because I want somebody to read it and enjoy it and get you know the same way I read um, crime obsessively and, and get enjoy reading that because I've worked it out or whatever and to, to hear the comments that somebody has actually enjoyed that book is so important to me it really matters so thank you any bloggers who might be listening you really are wonderful <laughs> that's uh yeah and we uh we endorse that because uh they're, they're extremely important and they've been uh very supportive of hobeck as, as a whole oh they're wonderful that i love them all <laughs> yeah. yeah um anyway look lynn we we ought to to almost wrap it up but we have got have you got one? I do have a random question. Okay, yes. well, you know, you, you knew question. this was coming. Uh, but here we go. Rebecca's random question. question. Go on. So the question is, if you could go back in time and find your 16-year-old self, what advice would you give your 16-year-old self? I think I would say be brave and don't worry about what people say because you can actually do what you want. And it's only when you get really grown up and old that you realise that you worried about too much what people said and what they expected of you instead of just getting on with it. Yeah, amen to, amen to that. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I try and say that to my 18-year-old, but... I mean, yeah, I think the tragedy right. is that you can't tell anybody, you have to live it. Yeah. That's right. Ionesco play, um, which is about the lesson, that's it, the lesson. Um, where somebody tries to give wisdom to younger people and there is no way, you know, you actually have to go through that process yourself. But I wish I could be 16 again and just with my inside body and, you know, so I, actually I was much thinner then, um, but um, actually with my brain. And my goodness, I would approach life very differently. But then I suppose that's not what life is, is it? It's actually going through no. making all those mistakes. Absolutely. But the same for me, I, you know, I would have taken a completely different path, but then I wouldn't have met this lovely man here if I'd taken a completely different path. <laughs> what I wouldn't hear from my 16-year-old body. <laughs> indeed, indeed. 
<laughs> I look at the school photo and there I'm sort of gamming thin and a, and a black polo. And I look the, more or less the same. I'm a little you, larger. You, you, but... you, no, you, you, <laughs> well, you, yeah, you don't, you've hardly changed at all since I knew you when at first at university, that's for sure. But of course, the tragedy <laughs> is you don't believe it, do you? When you when I look back and see myself at 16, I think, wow, I was all right. And yet at the time, I thought oh. I was fat and ugly and all those sort of things. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Your, your yeah. self-image is, yeah, I had the same sort of thing. I'd look at myself and think, because I, I, I was very gaunt and thin. Like my children are all beanpoles and I was the same. I was a complete beanpole, flat everywhere, long legs, long arms. <laughs> and I think no one's ever going to find me attractive. Yeah. What are you looking at me for? <laughs> And now there's no chance, you know, I've gone beyond that. <laughs> yeah, tastes change, don't they? Uh, <laughs> You're being rude now, aren't you? Yeah, I think uh, before I, I dig a, a deeper grave, um, oh. <laughs> we, we ought to, to draw it to a, a close. But Lynn, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Blood Notes is out from Hobeck Books uh, on the tuesday after this podcast midnight out. tonight strictly speaking well, yeah so. you're right absolutely we're very excited um that the you know we've already got in our hands book two so i know uh, that's, so that's after it. this after recording this podcast i'm gonna go make a cup of coffee and find my quiet corner and read some more blood notes uh, not blood notes sorry lines <laughs> um but uh, lynn thank you for uh for for being with us and also for signing up with us um it's been you know an honor and uh we can't thank... uh, we didn't hear bertie yeah exactly i was going to say um Whoa. one last thing to say is uh <laughs> you know give bertie a walk phone whatever else he wants uh from us <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks very much indeed it's been a pleasure and as i say it's a great honor working with you thank you Lovely to speak to Lynn Laversha and um, believe me, we'll be beating a path to her door and <laughs> lovely, see. lovely caramel Labrador uh, Bertie, I mean, who day... I miss terribly after only spending 48 hours in his company. A day like today would be perfect for uh, just turning up on Lynn's doorstep and saying, hello, surprise. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but it, it is a 260 mile <laughs> trip uh, just to get there. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I was on my travels a little bit this week, um, you know, for very sad circumstances. I went to a funeral in, in, in my old village of Hazingfield, just outside Cambridge, uh, where uh, some friends of ours lost their eldest son at 19. Um, but it was a beautiful service for David. And, um, you know, I I absolutely blown away by the composure the family has shown uh, mm. on that occasion. The The church... Well, it was beyond standing room. And to be honest, there were people outside who, who couldn't get in because I squeezed in next to the font <laughs> and stood up during the, the service. But um, there were hundreds there. And mm. the reception afterwards, in fact, the village hall couldn't cope with the numbers. We were... We, we, it's very touching. Yeah. It is. It's, it, yeah. And it was, I mean, from my perspective, of course, you, you get to see people you haven't seen for a very long time. Um, I haven't lived there for 10 years. Um, but it's amazing... Uh, you know how something like this, such such a tragedy. I mean, you know, he, what they were saying was that he he bore it with such fortitude. He he knew pretty much the prognosis was very bad, and it was thirteen months ago that he was diagnosed with um, T cell lymphoma, and um, spent most of the last few months of his life in a in a hospice. Um, but yeah, it was a very moving occasion, um, and. Uh, 
yeah, uh, it, it, again, these sort of things put things in perspective. I mean, he packed a lot into his the 19 years he was around. But to see the, the kids that I knew running around the playground when my kids were at the same primary school, getting up and, and paying tribute with such incredible eloquence and composure was really moving. Mm. Um, so. I mean, I you know, I obviously don't know the people involved, but um, two uh, children in the same um, age group of my children have, you know, similarly, um, unfortunately, succumbed to cancer. So it it is it is very poignant when it's a, somebody who's the same demographic as your own children because you look at your children and you know and they're, they're, they're looking in the fridge and they're saying what's for tea and oh, what's oh. what you <laughs> all the little niggles and annoyances oh i need some white socks which toby came out with this week <laughs> you know like two minutes before you get due to get in the car i need white socks for pe oh even last night toby i, I made um... you don't have any white socks why are you asking now <laughs> I made pasta and I said to Toby, uh, we've got courgettes as well. And he went, well, why would you eat courgettes with pasta? Who cooks courgettes with pasta? That's strange. <laughs> and mm. you know, those are the things where I could feel my hackles rising. And, and... Mm, they were, they were. I could feel that. I almost, I almost <laughs> intervened on that one. I was, I was here in the bed, bedroom and uh, I could hear that conversation. Um, that argument. But I'm lucky. I'm so lucky that they do that. <laughs> well, it was lovely this week because... You know, we've had, uh, as we mentioned last week, it was Toby's birthday, he was 12, and then Luke uh, turned 18 on Tuesday. So We've had a week of celebrations, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Lots of cake has been consumed. <laughs> it has, yeah. Not by me, I hasten to add. I had a little uh, bit. Yeah, well, I, I think... Um, Which is unheard well, of. Well, we did have the leftovers as a cake on both occasions. Yes, Okay. <laughs> But yeah, this is quite nice. I always call it my mini Christmas. And uh, when you see people on social media going on about wrapping their presents in November, I think just you can't be doing that in November. I've still got birthdays. (laughs) No, well, no, it was a good week from that perspective. Um, But, you know, as I say, in perspective with what uh, I witnessed in Cambridge anyway. so yeah, it was. It's been a uh, another busy week. Um, I think I finally got through the the slush pile and the submissions. So I'm not sure you completely have. No, exactly. Some blanks, but we'll talk about those later. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll fill in the blanks. Um, and uh, yeah, some more strong submissions. Yeah. So uh, more than yes, more than we could have expected at all. It's fantastic. Um, yes, it is. It is. Uh, you know, we ha- yeah, but then, you know, we realistically can't find homes for all the things that we think, you know, show promise. No, so our next stage, so we have requested full manuscript and there's, there's some still to request that I haven't got around to yet, but our next stage is to, to look at all of those and that might take some time. Yeah, and I think I think we're approaching it from a different perspective, slightly different perspective. I mean, we still maintain that, you know, if we love it, we'll publish it, but you know but you have to be realistic we can't publish everything one thing also we're getting much more used to what the market is ready for yeah that's interesting isn't it because we we're sort of balancing our gut feelings our own personal taste with expectations and also we're thinking about what we already published and we're thinking does this fit in with that because you know we know that the readers who are fans of our existing authors 
you know, we'll read what the other things we publish as well. But if they're too different from each other, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose difficult. we are. Co- yeah, we are coalescing to- towards a certain Hobeck style. Yeah, I mean, it's still pretty broad church. Let's be honest, but um, it can't be too outlandish. And there's one or two that that I think fit that category where they're really well written, but they're just too far gone for us. And actually, and, we're you know, not doing out of different direction. We're not doing the writer justice. And you know, we're no. not being fair to them because their 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 the quality of their their book may be fantastic and they there is a readership out there for them, but mm. we can't diversify our marketing too much to reach that new audience. You know, we've got to think about Yeah. Because, you know, the bottom line is that to reach any audience costs a lot of money now yeah and that is the that is the seminal difference between in the indie scene from uh a year ago even a year ago the pandemic has 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 as i've said before the traditional publishers have woken up to the power of the platforms that indies were using to drive sales and they've moved in into that space with bigger budgets and so now categories for instance on amazon if you want to advertise a mystery book the cost per click is huge i can imagine yeah um it's huge you know we're talking about i'm now being told that i would you know that amazon suggests that you pay one pound 20 for that keyword for that category well that's completely that's economic madness on a single title. Yes, it, well, you, you just couldn't do it. Well, I might as well write a cheque for whatever to each of our authors. Uh, so we're not going to bother marketing these, but, you know, this is what it costs us to get the books out, mm. you, know, at, you know, at that rate. And those categories are the ones which, which generate the most sales. Um, but to actually, you know, that's not much use if, if your margin is, let's say, for argument's sake... Uh, on a two ninety nine title, uh, we're entitled to a royalty after sharing with the author of seventy pence for for Hobeck. Now, if you're paying one pound twenty for that click, and that's per click, and that doesn't mean that necessarily it's going to be a sale. And that you, only you might cost you ten pounds to get your one sale. And so, so, yeah, like you say, you might as well write a check. And it would only work if you. If you had a read through, if this author in question had a series of about ten books, yeah, because even a series of three books is still not going to work. Four books is, you know, you're not yeah, going to break yeah, even, yeah. and that is expecting the reader to love it, carry on, and read buy them every, all, buy them all, yeah. And that is, it's that's that's where the crunch is at the moment, and um, you know, there there is just there are no free hits left out there. Social media is less, you know, everyone's in in on that. Uh, traditional publishers now are all over it and in a way they weren't um and let's not forget in the uk alone 500 books a day are being published 500 books a day amazon is an ecosystem of 8 million titles already mm-hmm. um and, and that... you know there are an awful lot of people who read one or two books a year something ridiculous like 60 percent of Mm-hmm. Adults mm-hmm. read one or two books. Well, a obviously year. you're trying to reach the whale readers, but they're saturated too. I mean, yes, you know, exactly. So, you know, um, it's God. We're sounding really depressing <laughs> this week, but no, you know, it it does call for a, a big dose of realism. 
Yes, I, th- I, th- I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to find a creative way to break through. Yeah. And if we just do the same as everybody else, it's not working. No. So the same styles of adverts, the sta- same targeting, the same, like you say, the same keywords within reason, obviously, not mm-hmm. the expensive keywords. It's not, that isn't enough. No. We need, we need to be, we're thinking about how to be more creative and how to sort of just stand out slightly, just to, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, you know, at the core of that is the quality of the books that we publish and the, the authors we work with. That's number one. And then the way we package things, obviously number two, you know, the blurbs, the, the covers, uh, the presentation, the publishing quality, again, is another another factor. But that's, that's an, they're, they're all expenses, um we refuse to compromise on quality oh ne- never yeah i mean we've we've always felt like that haven't we yeah, absolutely very... so look um we we you know remain optimistic that that we'll we'll find that method but uh you know when you hear of people something like Simon McCleave who's been on the program you know a million books to date congratulations but um i'd love to know how you did it and indeed whether you did it profitably that might actually be the the bigger question, because I think if you had, if you threw money at it, you will sell books, but not necessarily at a profit, and that is that is the challenge, without question. Yeah. Anyway, um, and the cat's fallen asleep during well, this podcast. Well, I'm not dead. <laughs> that tells you a lot. Um, we can even keep the cat awake, but um, yeah, it's another busy week. Uh, I return to the studio again. Uh, at the moment, I'm working through a couple of books in terms of proofing and, and making sure that in terms of the audio. I am about to start proofreading The Chemist by Lewis Hastings. You are. Well, you've got that. I'm reading Endangered <laughs> by Anthony Dunford. And we've got a whole load of full manuscripts, which we've asked in, which we've got to read as well, which, you know, realistically, I had an author actually phone us because, um, you know, my phone number is the the one that's listed publicly who was saying, uh, you know, because we've asked for the full manuscripts and he wanted a full review and, you know, how are we going forward? And, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's a little premature. <laughs> yeah, and I can understand. So we do get emails from people who've submitted to us. I can understand that they're keen to, you know, find out about progress. And I do feel bad about saying, I'm really sorry. <laughs> we've just been so busy. We haven't got to it yet. But, um, you know, so I do thank you all for your patience. Anyone who submitted to us, thank you so yeah. much for being patient with us. Well, I think that's what it's going to require because uh, it's going to take us a long time to get through all those books. Yeah, but we are, we're, we're slow and steady. We we want to take the right amount of time, the right amount of consideration because it's a very important decision for us as it is for the authors. Who, Absolutely, so. 100%, 100%. Right, well, uh, it's been a busy week. No, uh, just a moment, please. Um we are recording the podcast. That was Toby. Toby knocking at the door. <laughs> um, we're going to wrap it up there. So, uh, I've been Adrian Hobart. And I've been Rebecca Collins. And Aki has been Aki. Aki has been Aki. And very quiet Aki for once. Uh, just to remind you, of course, you can go to our website, www.hobeck.net, to find out more about the business, more about what we do, about our authors, our books, our blogs, you name it. It's all there. And you can buy books as well uh, from our website but also we're available across the amazon empire <laughs> <laughs> much to our chagrin at times uh we uh we thank you very much for your uh, for your company on this program and don't forget to subscribe to the hopcast book show 
wherever you get your podcasts from. But from me, Adrian Hibbert. And me, Rebecca Collins. Thank you for joining us, and we wish you a wonderful and creative week. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.